Welcome to the Lighthouse Writers Workshop podcast, because sometimes what a writer needs most is other writers, even virtually. Writers Studio is a Lighthouse signature event that brings a nationally recognized writer to the Denver cultural community for a weekend of events. An on-stage reading and interview offers a peek inside the writer's life, followed by a writerly-themed benefit dinner with the author. A craft seminar the next morning is a very special opportunity to learn more about the writer's process from a master. The spring 2013 Writer's Studio guest was Mark Doty. Doty's work has been honored by the National Book Critics Circle Award, the Los Angeles Times Book Prize, a Whiting Writer's Award, two Lambda Literary Awards, and the Penn Martha Albrand Award for First Nonfiction. He is the only American poet to have received the T.S. Eliot Prize in the U.K. and has received fellowships from the Guggenheim, Ingram Merrill, and Lila Wallace Reader's Digest Foundations and from the National Endowment for the Arts. Welcome, everybody. Thanks for coming. It's my honor and pleasure to introduce our studio guest, Mark Doty. His talents are multiple, his work is gorgeous and intelligent, and it's clear to me that he is more than an artist who craves, carves, excuse me, words onto the page. He's a true man. He craves words. That one works too, craves words onto the page. I like that. It's good that you can't see. There you go. Um, He is a true man of ideas, a contemporary philosopher, if you will. As a young writer, I remember learning this axiom. A good writer knows his or her craft, but a great writer uses craft to capture big ideas, to give us a deeper glimpse into what it's like to be human. And Mark Doty is a writer who definitely satisfies that higher requirement. As a starting point, Mark Doty's work, to use his own words, can be considered, quote, a diminutive chime somewhere between merriment and weeping. But his work is so much more than that. His poems, essays, and memoirs wrestle with vast, inscrutable questions. The work interrogates the self and the reader. The writer wants to know. The reader wants to understand. Together, they want to celebrate and remember. In his work, his poems and memoir, the writing is intimate but not cloying. The work is smart but not stuffy. The work celebrates but does not shout out histrionically. The work is sometimes challenging but not as an intentional intentional form of artifice. The work is super serious often, and yet it makes fun of itself and its grave stances. The work echoes those who came before, not to stomp out that prior magic, but to build upon the timelessness of those works. In all this, then, Mark's work, both prose and poetry, is instructive. In a recent interview, he sagely points out that the Greek word poesis is knowledge. Or to give you a fuller fuller definition, poesis is the changing of the soul through the cultivation of virtue and knowledge. As many of you know, Lighthouse Workshop is a growing and thriving organization, and I think Jay said that very, very beautifully. Um, It it is a close-knit family. It's not just a community. To me, it's a family to which all people are welcome. And as many of you know, as as Jay pointed out, um, this has been a difficult year for the Lighthouse family. We lost a dear friend and longtime student, Robin. We lost two very dedicated and energetic instructors, instructors, both uniquely talented and gifted, 
um, and just incredibly smart and funny writers in Court and Jake. So it's perhaps appropriate that our studio guest is Mark Doty, who writes so eloquently about grief and loss. A good friend of mine likes to promote the idea that what you're reading is the very thing you're supposed to be reading in, the, in that moment of your life. And my focus on the work of Mark these past few months bears that statement out perfectly. His lessons about loss are the ones I have needed to hear this winter and spring. In his memoir, Firebird, the phoenix serves as a metaphor to all of us, not only in terms of self, but as a symbol of the power we have over our lives. He writes, We live the stories we tell. The stories don't live us. What you don't allow yourself to know controls and determines. Whatever is held to the light can be changed, not the facts, of course, but how we understand them, how we live with them. Everyone will be filled by grief, distorted by sorrow. That's the nature of being. What matters is what we learn to make of what happens to us. And he goes on. And we learn to make, I think, by telling. Held to the light of common scrutiny, nothing's ever quite as unique as our shame and sorrow would have us think. But if you don't say it, you're alone with it. Proximity is the best consolation. Place the griefs beside one another and watch them diminish. We seem to need to hear. Yes, I've known something like that too. That's why I've come to love and appreciate Mark Doty's work so much. The proximity of you out there in the audience makes these challenges I've faced that we as a community, as a family have faced a lot easier to bear. Like the firebird, grief and loss will burn us down to our core, sure, but this heaviness is then turned to the lightest of elements, ash, and we become new again. Hey! Ooh! Illumination! The power of my words. Actually, Mark's words, that long quote, I think, was the thing that turned that on. That's awesome. Where was I? And we become new again. This process, of course, is all about hope. And here I'll finish with lines from Emily Dickinson, a poet Mark quotes often and generously. I'm sure you know this. Hope is the thing with feathers that perches in the soul and sings the tune without the words and never stops at all. Please join me in welcoming Mark Doty. My thanks first to Michael for that beautiful introduction. You know, um, part of what happens to one as a traveling writer is that the more you do this, the more people say absolutely devastating things about one before you get up to speak. And then here I am, you know, putting myself back together to, to talk to you. But, but, but thank you. It was very moving. Um, and, and my gratitude to Lighthouse Writers for a really warm welcome to Denver um, and to this great theater. I am a little excited about reading in a mountaineering center. (laughs) I've been around, but this is new. This is is a new thing. Uh, So I'm going to read you uh, a couple of uh, poems uh, that are uh, go back a few years now, and then um, mostly new work. Poems I'm still learning about uh, from a manuscript called Deep Lane, which 
I think I'm going to turn in next month. I'm excited about it. So um, I'll begin with a poem that started when I was in a really bad mood about the fate of poetry and thinking about how, how I and my friends obsess mightily over whether to include the dash in line four. You know? <laughs> when, in fact, um, an eager public is not awaiting the news you know, about this decision. Um, and so it was in such a mood um, that I went to one of the favorite poem nights, which uh, were organized by Robert Pinsky when he was poet laureate. It was in Houston, Texas, and um, you'll hear the results. This is called Apparition, Favorite Poem. The old words are dying. Everyone forgets them. Pages falling into sleep and dust, dust and sleep, burning so slowly you wouldn't even know there's a fire. Or that's what I think half the time. Then, at the bookstore, a young man reciting, slight for 14, blonde, without irony, but not self-important either. His loping East Texas vowels threaten to escape the fence of pentameter. His voice seems to have just arrived here, but the old cadence inhabits anyway. He makes the poem his own, even as he becomes a vessel for its reluctance to disappear. All right, maybe they perish, but the boy has the look of someone repeating a crucial instruction that must be delivered word for word as he has learned it. My name is Ozymandias, King of Kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Well, what he actually said was, my name is Ozymandias. <laughs> I can't read it that way. And I, I felt that night that in my uh, despairing moment about poetry, a gift had come from Mr. Shelley through this young man to me. And I wrote my poem, and it was picked up for an anthology. I went back to the same bookstore to read it, and there was that young man in the audience, right? So I got to read him the poem. And um, uh, later, I, I got a note from his girlfriend, an, an email. At least she, he, he denied having a girlfriend, but uh, she claimed that you know, this event had, had been life-changing for him. And so there was something about a gift from Shelley to me and from me to that young man, and uh, somehow you know, a sense of, of the circularity of the gift. And poetry often flies under the radar, is nearly invisible, and yet, and yet, doesn't seem to perish. This one um, began in Jersey City. Uh, I live in Manhattan, and Jersey City across the river is, is one of our more um, desolate outposts, although uh, it, it doesn't think it's an outpost of anything. You know, it's, Jersey City is in its own right. I was driving there one winter morning, and I came upon a beauty shop that had just been set on fire. Uh, there was a, a crack in the window, a few flames. You could hear the ringing alarm inside. You could hear the fire department sirens on the way. And I, I looked for a moment, and I, I drove on. But I couldn't stop thinking about it. And in a while, this poem began to organize itself. It's modeled on the nursery rhyme, The House That Jack Built. So each line ends with a version of the same... Each stanza ends with a version of the same line. And each stanza is one line longer than the one before. So hopefully you'll hear it stack up. House of Beauty. In Jersey City, on Tonelli Avenue, the House of Beauty is burning. On a Sunday morning in January... Under the chilly shadows of the Pulaski Skyway, the house of beauty is burning. Who lobbed the fire bottle through the glass 
in among the creams and thrones, the helmets and clippers and combs, who set the house of beauty burning? In the dark recess beside the sink, where heads lay back to be laved, under the perfected heads rode along the walls, the hopeful photographs of possibility darken, now that the house of beauty is burning. The skyway beetles in the ringing cold, trestle arcing the steel rivers and warehouses, truck lots and Indian groceries, a new plume of smoke joining the others, billow of dark thought rising from the broken forehead of the house of beauty, an emission almost too small to notice just now, alarm still ringing, the flames new launched on their project of ruining an effort at pleasure. Glass jutting like cracked ice in the window frame. No one inside. The fire department on the way. All things by nature, wrote Virgil, are ready to get worse. No surprise, then, that the house of beauty is burning. (laughs) Though whatever happens, however far these fires proceed, reducing history to powder, whatever the house of beauty made is untouchable now. Nothing can undo so many heads made lovely or at least acceptable. So much shapelessness given what are called permanence, though nothing holds a fixed form. (laughs) Bring on the flames. What does it matter if the house is burning? Propose a new beauty, perennially unhoused. Neither the lost things nor the fire itself, but the objects in their dresses of disaster. Anything clothed in its own passage, Padded vinyl chair burst into smoky tongues. Lucite helmet sagged to a new version of its dome. Our black bridge, a charred rainbow on iron legs. Two ruby eyes glowering from its crown. If beauty is burning, what could you save? The house of beauty is a house of flames. That poem owes a debt to the great French poet and filmmaker Jean Cocteau, who, who was asked by a journalist, if your apartment was on fire, what would you save? And he said, I would save the flames. <laughs> Which I'm sure is not true, you know, but uh, it's um, a very splashy and dramatic statement. <laughs> the House of Beauty, by the way, um, I went by there not so long ago, and they seem to have collected the insurance money because it's now blazing and rebuilt and has big neon House of Beauty over the top. It needs a, the poem needs a sequel. <laughs> so um, here come some new poems. I have a um, golden retriever who's, you know, one of the loves of my life. His name is Ned. And, and having written many poems, as well as a full-length memoir about uh, my dogs, I, I, I felt that it was time to stop that. And I, I said, okay, no more dog poems. And then Ned would do something sort of interesting, you know. And I, no, 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 no. He, just, he would try harder. And I said, no, 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 you know. And I gave up, finally, you know. You'll see why. This is called Deep Lane. June 23rd, evening of the first fireflies. We're walking in the cemetery down the road, and I look up from my distracted study of whatever, an unfocused gaze somewhere a few feet before me on the grass, and see that Ned has run on ahead, with the champagne plume of his tail held especially high, his head erect, which is often a sign that he has something he believes he is not allowed to have. (laughs) 
And in the gathering twilight, what is it that is gathered? Who is doing the gathering? I can make out that the long horizontal between his lovely jaws is one of the four stakes planted on the slope to indicate where the backhoe will dig a new grave. Of course, my impulse is to run after him, to replace the marker out of respect for the rule that we won't desecrate the tombs, or at least for the particular knowledge of those who knew the woman whose name inks a placard in the rectangle claimed by the four poles of vanishing. Well, three poles now. (laughs) And how it's within their recollection, their gathering, she'll live. Evening of memory, spark lamps in the grass, I stand and watch him go in his wild figure eights. I say, you run, darling. You tear up that hill. (laughs) You may have noticed that poem has a title, Deep Lane, which ostensibly has has nothing to do with it. Um, Deep Lane is a road uh, near my house in the country out on Long Island. And it's a... It's a pretty little road, but what I really like is the name, Deep Lane, the two monosyllables, the two long vowels, the sense of going forward and down, Deep Lane. And there's something about that that began for me to resonate with a sense that in that landscape, and maybe especially in my garden there, I feel like I'm descending, as it were, to both clarity and mystery. So... I wrote a poem called Deep Lane, and, and I knew I wasn't done, and I wrote another one, and, and now there are about 15 poems called Deep Lane, and, and that's the title of this new book. This one um, is in part about the intense labor of the gardener and, and why one does that, and it also remembers um, the late Deborah Diggs, a wonderful poet, uh, my friend, who uh, died uh, by her own hand uh, three years ago. Deep Lane. When I'm down on my knees, pulling up wild mustard by the roots before it sets seed, hauling the old ferns further into the shade, I'm talking to the anvil of darkness. Break table, slab no blow could dent, wrung with the making, and out of that chop and rot comes the fresh surf of the lupins. When the shovel slips into white root flesh, into the meat coursing with cool water, when I'm grubbing on my knees, what is the hammer? dusky skin of the tuber, naked worms who write on the soil every letter, my companion blind, all day we go digging, harrowing, rooting deep, spade plunge and trowel, sweet turned down gas flame, slow charring carbon, out of which sprouts the wild unsayable. Beauty's the least of it. You get ready, like Deborah, who used to garden in the dark, hauling out candles and a tall glass of what she said was tea, and digging and reading and studying in the dirt. She'd bring a dictionary. If study is prayer, she said, I'm praying. If you've already gone down to the anvil, if you've rested your face on that adamantine, maybe you're already changed. I'm guessing you have ticks in Colorado, yes? You have ticks here? Ticks, ticks on Long Island are like the bane of our existence, you know? 
You, you, you walk outside between April and November, and you have a tick. Right? This, is just, this is life. We've even, there's even something, there's a little um, uh, place near me called Shelter Island, which has invented the concept of Shelter Island foreplay, which involves couples checking one another for ticks, you know, before bed. <laughs> poem references the notion of Manichaeanism, which is an old theological notion that the world is divided into forces of good and evil, darkness and light, and that the struggle between these forces may come out anyway. Who knows? Deep Lane. Into Eden came the ticks, princes of this world, heat-seeking, tiny, multitudinous. Lord, why have you given them a heart? A nervous system, a lit microchip of a brain, is it? If not to invite Manichaeanism. Hard to believe the force that shaped the mild tortoise traversing the undergrowth with smallest steps, the sway-necked lily. Hard to countenance that same mind dotting paradise with pinhead demons wanting nothing but to gorge, to suck beyond the dreams of their hell brothers, the mosquitoes. Implacable, without boundary, pure appetite. I wouldn't know anything about that. (laughs) Um, This this poem has to do with the experience of buying a used book without really looking inside. You've done this, yes? Um, I'm sad to report this happened to me with an edition of Leaves of Grass, which is one of the most important books in my life. And... I was going to teach a poetry workshop, and I wanted to bring my students um, section six of Song of Myself, which begins, a child said, what is the grass? Fetching it to me with full hands. How could I answer the child? I do not know what it is any more than he. So I ran in the nearest used bookstore, and of course, every used bookstore in America, if not the world, has a copy of Leaves of Grass, right? (laughs) And I buy the book without looking, and here's what happened. What is the grass? On the margin, in the used text I've purchased without opening, pale, green, dutiful vessel, some unconvinced student has written in a clear, looping hand, isn't it grass? (laughs) How could I answer the child? I do not exaggerate. I think of her question for years. And while first I imagine her the very type of the incurious, revealing the difference between a mind at rest and one that cannot, later I come to imagine that she had faith in language. That was the difference. She believed that the words settle things. The matter need not be looked into again. And he who'd written his book over and over nearly ruining it, so enchanted by what had first compelled him. For him, the word settled nothing at all. Which is why Leaves of Grass is that thick. Thank you. Thank you. Very nice. Uh, little poem. Um, for me, um, animal company has been a continual source of of poetry, the the, the wellsprings of my art. There's something about being face-to-face with a creature that is clearly sentient, aware, taking in the world, but isn't thinking the way you do. That's not a human awareness. That seems to be to wake us up. And, of course, for all their wonderful sound-making, animals do not employ words. 
and poets love to go where there are no words, yes? This one takes its title from a little, beautiful little town south of San Francisco Bay, Pescadero. The little goats like my mouth and fingers, and one stands up against the wire fence and taps on the fence board a hoof made blacker by the dirt of the field pushes her mouth forward to my mouth so that I can see the smallish squared seeds of her teeth and the bristle whiskers, and then she kisses me, though I know it doesn't mean kiss. <laughs> then leans her head way back, arcing her spine, goat yoga, all pleasure and greeting, and then good-natured indifference. She loves me. <laughs> she likes me a lot. <laughs> she takes interest in me. She doesn't know me at all or need to, having thus acknowledged me, though I am all happiness, since I have been welcomed by the field's small envoy, and the splayed hoof, fragrant with soil, has rested on the fence board beside my hand. <laughs> that poem um, came out in a national magazine, and uh, it, it produced my favorite fan mail. You know, um, a goat farmer in Oregon wanted to get to know me better. Um, um, a, some citizens of Pescadero were thrilled to see their town represented in print. And the very best letter was from a teacher at uh, a progressive school, experimental school in the Bay Area, where every year the kindergartners go to the goat farm in Pescadero. And the first graders who did not get to go read my poem and remembered, which seems to me the most lovely fate for a poem. Text of memory and affection. to bear with me, I have um, some vision issues after pretty serious eye surgery. And so I use this iPad now for my reading so I can actually see. And it means I have to sometimes spend a little time looking, but I'm not lost. I'm wandering. <laughs> I think we'll have uh, three more poems. Hmm? Tiny one first. Um, all poets at some time or other you know, write Ars Poetica. Some of us write many of them, a poem which is intended to say something about what one is trying to do in making a poem. Um, this one um, began in another one of my favorite sources of inspiration, the locker room. You never know. This is Ars Poetica, 14th Street Gym. Beauty that does not disguise the wound but allows us to read through it, down to the lack it marks, inscribing what it can't restore. The one-armed man lifts himself again and again on the assisted pull-up machine. Sleeve of sparrows, are they? And morning glories swelling with each upward pull. In the locker room, I praise his ink, and he turns to thank me, and so that I may read, in the absence of his other arm, the blue wing needled on the socket. Spent. Late August morning, I go out to cut spent and faded hydrangeas, washed green, russets, troubled little auras of sky, as if these were the very silks of Versailles, modeled by rain and ruin, then half restored after all this time. 
When I come back with my handful, I realized I've accidentally locked the door and can't get back into the house. The dining room window's easiest. Crawl through beauty bush and spirea, push aside some errant maples, take down the wood frame screen, hoist myself up. But how exactly to clamber across the sill and the radiator down to the tile? I try bending one leg in, but I don't fold readily. I push myself up so that my waist rests against the sill and lean forward, place my hands on the floor, and begin to slide down into the room, which makes me think this was what it was like to be born. (laughs) Awkward. (laughs) Too big for the passageway. Negotiate. Submit. When I give myself to gravity, there I am, inside, no harm. The dazzling, splotchy flower heads scattered around me on the floor. Will leaving the world be the same? Uncertainty as to how to proceed, some discomfort, and suddenly you're where? I am so involved with this idea, I forget to unlock the door. So when I go out to fetch the mail, (laughs) I'm locked out again. Am I at home in this house? Would I prefer to be out here, where I could be almost anyone? This time it's simpler. The window frame, the radiator, my descent, born twice in one day. In their silver jug, these bruised-blessed flowers, how hard I had to work to bring them into the room. When I say spent, I don't mean they have no further coin. If there are lives to come, I think they might be a little easier than this one. Thank you very much. Um, So this is the last poem, and this is very new. This poem is two weeks old. It was drafted around Christmas time, as you'll hear, and then I had to let it sit for a long time. And reading new poems is a way for me to learn about them, so, so things are still getting scratched out. And if you ever encounter this poem again, it may be... I hope it may be a little tighter, a little different, but it's ready to read. Um, It's called This Your Home Now. And for reasons you will understand, it needs to be like, This Your Home Now. But, but, you know, I I can't really do that exactly. So, This Your Home Now. For years, I went to the Peruvian barbers on 18th Street. Comforting, like anything repeated over time. Welcome, the full coat rack. Three chairs held by three barbers, the eldest by the window, the middle one, a slight fellow who spoke an oddly feminine, high-pitched Spanish, the youngest last, red-haired, self-consciously masculine. And in each of the mirrors, their children's photos, mildly smutty cartoons, postcards from Machu Picchu. I was happy in any cheer, though I liked best the touch of the oldest who'd rest his hand against my neck in a thoughtless, confident way. Ten years, maybe. One day, the powdery blue steel shutters pulled down over the window and door, not to be raised again. I heard they'd lost their lease, moved to a shop on 7th, but there the Russian owner gave them only two days a week so that they decamped for some far outpost, Washington Heights. I didn't anticipate how at a loss I'd feel. What little hair I have requires neither art nor science. But this fuzz about what I'd like to think the sculptural presence of my skull means to me intensely. Two haircuts on 7th, one in Dublin, nothing right. Then I hear my friend Marie laughing over my shoulder, saying, in your poems there's always a then. And I think, is it a poem without a then? (laughs) Dull early winter, back on 18th, just past the post office trucks, 
up-spiraling red in a cylinder of glass. Just below the line of the sidewalk, a new sign, Willie's Barbershop. Hunt to find the entry, dark hallway, a glass door, and there's presumably Willie, speaking Spanish in an inscrutable accent. When I tell him I used to go down the street, he says, this your home now. Puts me in a chair and asks me what I want, and soon he's clipping and singing with the radio. It's beginning to look a lot like Christmas. That's when I notice Willie's walls. Though he's been here all the week, spangled with images hung in barbershops since the beginning of time. Lounge singers, near celebrities, random boxers, Italian boys, Puerto Rican, caught in the hour of their beauty, though they'd scowl at the word. Frank Sinatra, scribbling love to Willie. Somebody at the bat, two cheering victors over a trophy won for what? Frames already dusty. Already at slight angles. Here it is clear forever. Are barbershops like aspens, each sprung from a common root 10,000 years old? <laughs> Sons of one father? The best ones, the old ones, hold up fighters and starlets to hold at bay the tenderness at their hearts. Willie defies time, our kind, neutral guardian. His chair, our ferry boat. And we go down into the trance of touch and the skull buzz drone of the clipper singing cranial nerves in the direction of peace. And so I understand that in the endless hallway leading into the back of this nothing building on 18th Street, the men I have outlived await their turns. The fevered and wasted, whose mothers and lovers scattered their ashes and gave away their clothes. Twenty years and their names tumble into a numb well, though in truth I have not forgotten one of you. May I never forget one of you. And beyond you, in rooms too deep and densely packed to ever see into all the rest, compressed in their no longer breathing ranks. Willie, I have not lived well in my grief for them. I have lugged this weight from place to place as if it were mine to account for it. And today I sit in your good chair in the sixth decade of my life. And if your back door is the threshold to the kingdom of the lost, here is a good steady hand on my shoulder. Stranger, guardian, go down into the deep still waters of this chair and you come up refreshed, ready to walk the avenue. Maybe I do believe we will not be left comfortless that after everything comes tumbling down or you tear it down and stumble in the Shadow Valley trenches of the moon, there's still a decent chance at, well, a barbershop, Christmas on the radio, the instruments of renewal wielded effortlessly, and who'd have thought, for you. <coughs> Willie, if he is Willie, fusses much longer over my head than my head merits, <laughs> which allows me to be grateful without qualifications. I know I don't know the first thing about satisfaction, but maybe I've seen enough to be a little satisfied. There's a man who loves me, our dogs, 10 or 20 good years, if I'm careful. That's what I haven't written. It's sunny out, though cold. After I tip Willie, I'm going down to Jane Street to a coffee shop I like, and then I'm going to write this poem. Then... <laughs> Who needs questions? Why don't you just read some more poetry? <laughs> Thank you very much. That, um, so that's a brand new poem. That's a brand new poem. Goodness. That's the second time I've read it. Wow. Yeah. That's great. 
it, it seemed like a very, very much of a signature um, work for you. There is the and then, which happens quite a bit. Yes. The questions, <laughs> lots of questions. Yes. And then it starts in one place. It's just a haircut. It's just a poem about a haircut, haircutting mm-hmm. place. And then mm-hmm. it meditates on death and grief. Yeah. yeah. And it's a, a contract with um, Xperia. It's, um, it's an agreement to be renewed, hmm? which I, I feel like right. is something I've had to do many a time. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, I also heard an echo of um, that Jane Kenyon poem. Does not leave us comfortless. Absolutely. Right, Absolutely. I heard that line, yeah. which is wonderful. Do you know, I don't, maybe somebody in the audience knows where that statement comes from. It, it's traditional. God will not leave us comfortless. And I, I don't know if it's uh, maybe somewhere in the Psalms? or, or I just don't know. So if anybody knows. Anybody? You know, tell me later. Think about it. Because I think Extra. Jane's quoting something, too. She might be, yeah. yeah. Um, well, I, I, what I'd like to do is just start with the beginning. Um, Way back in the beginning. Okay. <laughs> um, when did you? I'm sorry. What's that? That does come from the scripture. That does. Come, it does. <laughs> yes. In the beginning. In the beginning. When did you first know you wanted to be a poet? Oh gosh. Um, I started reading poetry seriously in high school and, and writing it, and it it had to do with um, having a, a large chaotic inner life which I, I needed to give some form to, um, but not, I didn't want to keep a diary because I, I didn't, for some reason, didn't want to write down what happened to me. And I didn't want to express my thoughts and feelings directly because somebody might read it, you know. And I even kept my notebook in really deliberately horrible handwriting, so if anybody found it, they wouldn't know what it said. Um, hmm. So it was expression of feeling. It was bits and pieces, daydreams, things I overheard, drawings, and, and images, I don't know exactly where that came from, except that I had started to notice the poems in um, in Tolkien, the little songs the characters sang in *The Lord of the Rings*. I had stumbled across poems by William Blake, the uh, the short poems of the Songs of Innocence and Experience, and Garcia Lorca. Um, This was uh, you know late '60s, and in my town, Tucson, Arizona, there was this really hip little bookstore on Fourth Street, Fourth Avenue, I guess, which is a place you went if you were cool, place you went to buy sandals and. And incense, right? And um, <laughs> the bookstore had so few books that they were face out, right? And there was a rack of poetry. So you see these beautiful poetry books. And there was um, the, a selected Garcia Lorca. There were the early books that Kayak Press published, you mm-hmm. know, like uh, Charles Simic's first book that you could buy for like $1.95 or something. And they had these wonderful surrealist collages. And I was so drawn to these books. And, and that was some of it, that the, the love of the printed word and the book as an object and these resonant, dreamy things that you could, you could, you know, they could be translated, say, from Lorca's Spanish into English, but you couldn't translate them from poetry, poetry to prose. They, right. were, they were themselves and, and irreducible. And it was very magnetic to me. Yeah, and there's a certain freedom in that, to be very able to go sure. and find those books. Um, it's interesting that you, you would write sort of like da Vinci in, in backwards Latin, kind of, so nobody could read the, his journals. Right? Didn't he do that? Yeah. He did. So yeah. he, he I could think his were probably a little more scrutable Well, probably, to him, maybe, anyway. yeah. Um, <laughs> But that idea of freedom, I think, is something that, that I really um, uh, found um, really engaging in, in your memoir, Fire, your coming-of-age memoir, Firebird. Um, and there were scenes where your parents um, get these slides of classical art, and the whole family sits down, and, and they, they, view, they view the artwork. And I thought that was kind of interesting, you know, embracing um, art as something to be, 
to be, you know, to be viewed as a family, which I thought was really wonderful. But there was that one um, passage, and, and I'm hoping you could just take a moment and read it for me. Um, and, and this, I think, you know, ties to some some of the um, some of the major themes that we, we've heard in your poems. Um, but I think also that idea of um, letting oneself be free. Um, and so, um, it's it's. Let me. I don't know how I'm going to navigate this. I'll have to. Well, <laughs> hold on. <laughs> We will soon figure out how to hold these without making lots of thumping noises. So it starts right at the bottom of 81, just that beginning of the sentence and to the end of the chapter. Sure. If you'd indulge me, thank you. Um, This little bit here? Yes. Okay, all right. Um, So just to set this up for you slightly, um, I had an extraordinary fourth grade teacher who uh, was the sort of person who loved her students' creativity beyond all else. You know, we... We gathered plants in the desert and boiled them to make natural dyes, and we spun wool, and we painted, and we drew, and we listened to music. And one day, uh, Miss Tynes pushed all the she had us push all the desks in the classroom back against the walls, and she put Stravinsky on the record player and cranked it up loud. She said, "Now, children, close your eyes, and when you're ready, move." So we were supposed to sort of do improvisational dance to the Firebird Suite, and I loved this. I, I, before you know it, you know, I found myself kind of transported by the music and leaping around the room. Now, I am at this point 10 years old, and I'm, I'm a chubby boy with glasses and bookish and don't know how to dance by any means, and really an outsider. I'm always the new kid. I have a southern accent. I like to read. Um, uh, there was no reason in the world I should have felt comfortable doing an improvisational ballet for my uh, <laughs> fellow fourth graders. But I did. And... Um, I was so into it that the next day, Miss Tynes said, um, okay, you know, students, push your desk back against the wall. You can read, you can color, whatever you want to do. Mark's going to dance for us. And I did it. I did a solo to the Firebird the next day. Now, when I remembered this, I thought, this is the weirdest thing I've ever heard of. You know, it's 1963, Tucson, Arizona, rigid gender roles, and there I am just flying around the room without a shred of self-consciousness. And... I realized later that this experience for me was so much about finding a solace or, or get, escaping from the little confined self and putting yourself into the hands of something larger. In that music, I could be part of a Stravinsky's work. I, I could be something permanent and enduring and something blazing, whereas you know the little self was embattled and scared and, and um, self-conscious and shy. But you didn't have to stay there through performance or through immersion in art. You could be part of something else. So, it is the firebird, after all, no longer a hide-and-seek flitting in the trees, but he, but who he always was, beneath the scorch and the ashes, beneath the ordinary ugly body in which he has been disguised, under the shame he's worn like a cloak, under the misunderstandings and the knowledge that he can't be who they want, that they do not want who he is. Here is who he is. Swelling, taking form, the real body, triumphant boy, the bird in the fullness of its light, larger, empowered. Isn't it fire itself, the fact of burning, which enables the bird to dance? Then swirling around him, the gorgeous cloaks, the brassy fabric of trumpets, the facades and the fanfares glorious above them all, and rising higher, the tower of light the bird is entering, which is the calmly flaming elevation of his own body, transfigured to something we can barely see, but given here, sound. 
And so we're left with shimmer and the downward drift of a minor chord darkening, and then the emphatic burst of conclusion, unsayable movement given form in the body of a heavy little boy no longer weighted, without limit, hardly held to earth at all. Great. Thank you. I I, I love that passage just because um, we've all probably felt like an awkward fourth grader. At least I have, um, and, and I just I just love how that how that moment just sort of evokes um, so many things, and just the the way that the boy loses himself in in this in this art, and I think um, that that's just a wonderful moment, and I think in many ways it, it also sets up a lot of um, themes, if 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 I dare suggest what your themes might be, um, th- themes of rebirth, themes of losing sense of self, um, even in the um, the beauty parlor. Fire, fire looms large in, in much of your work. Um, and so, you know, um, the idea that things burn down and then they are reborn is something that I think is, is absolutely remarkable, and I love that idea. Um, and I, I think, I guess if there's a question to be had is, um, would you say that this is a good metaphor for the artistic process, the losing of oneself to, to recreate oneself? Well, um, for me, first, I think it was about the experience of art rather than the experience of making it. And, and I felt, um, when I remembered that story, I began to think about the ways that different experiences of, of, of performance, different experiences of art, had been, for me, refuges during um, a, a childhood that became increasingly turbulent. And um, so I wanted to think about the way art gives at least some of us a kind of safe haven, you know, a place to go that... Um, is um, well friendlier than your family, you know, <laughs> and uh, and and actually loves you, or or at least is neutral towards you, welcomes you in. You can be a participant in this music or this painting, or you know, you can take pleasure in this poem. So I was thinking about that first, and then I think that sort of naturally leads into the sense that you might also be a creator yourself. Mm, interesting, yeah. And for some reason, I'm thinking about the um, the new the new barber. Mm-hmm. Um, being almost a figure that helps in- encourage that. Yeah, exa- somehow, exactly. You know, I love Lily. He's, yeah, he's kind of a gatekeeper right. in a way. He, he, absolutely. Um, yeah. And I just love. I mean, I, you know, obviously, I haven't heard that poem, but I just loved how um, you, you 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 went to those larger questions. Um, I, I just think it's really interesting. Um, I'd like to move on a little bit and and, and talk um, about how. I mean, one thing about that idea of the firebird metaphor is that it requires a sense of destruction um, before the rebirth can happen, um, which in some ways I think ties to the art. You you certainly build upon what has come before, but sometimes in that building you you kind of, you you may, I think nowadays we don't necessarily destroy it. We kind of, um, we make new combinations of that. but one of the things I, 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 I um, appreciate in your work, and this is a quote from, I think, an interview that you said, um, and this is the idea of um, not art as a destructive process or a rebirth process, but the idea of art as something that um, is, is always a failure, mm-hmm. um, which I think is a theme in um, still life. Um, it's also certainly a theme in um, dog years. You said, I believe that reality cannot be captured in language, period. It's too complex, too shifty, too difficult to know and to say. I think that reality can be approached, pointed to, suggested, and that the more stylistic means one has at one's disposal, the better. That's why, the, that's why in the title poem of my book, Atlantis, there are a number of sections that circle around the same core, around experiences that I believe are fundamentally unsayable. 
but I try. I try it plain, colloquial, try it elevated, formal, <laughs> try it through narrative, try it through lyric, try it through metaphor. Um, it, it, to me, that ties also partly to your, um, in your poems, that you ask questions and you come, um, I love the fact that your poems don't just say something and then end. They say something and then they take a step back and say, well, I'm going to come at it from a different angle and then I'm going to try and say it this way. And the fact that, you know, um, Deep Lane, there are 15 poems about Deep Lane, which I think is a great example of that, that you're trying in each poem to capture what, it, what Deep Lane is all about. Um, I wouldn't say that necessarily that they're all failures, but they're all kinds of these attempts. They're, they're, well, what I mean by failure is that they're limited in their capacity to, to hold. You know, the, the structure that you make in a poem, no matter how much you widen your grasp and how much you try to fit in there, there are things that are going to leak out or can't be part of that poem. And so um, each one is an attempt at representing what it's like to, to be alive in a particular moment, a particular situation. And each one, well, well, I won't say each one, but, but a great many of them, a number of the poems that you heard are negotiations with the fact of being mortal. They, they are sort of um, ways, attempts on my part to think about the idea that a limit to, to me, you know, a, a limit to anybody, to our experience, could be something acceptable to, to us. Because it seems to be fundamentally unacceptable, the idea that, that, you know, that we will perish horrendous. You know? How can we think about that in ways that might make it bearable or at least momentarily even something to embrace perhaps you know so right. the poem which in which uh, you know Ned has got that graveyard stake and he's tearing up the hill having a great time I mean that's one way to think about mortality well then race into your life tear it up you know the poem that I read after it about my friend Deborah um, is thinking about gardening as a rehearsal it's uh, going down into the earth temporarily as a way to figure out what it's like to come towards the base of things you know yeah. the, the adamantine the anvil I'll I, I tell you a story about that poem um, if you've ever ordered anything online for a garden you know that you will immediately be besieged by catalogs right <laughs> so this happened to me and I got a zillion catalogs and one of them was a catalog of bearded iris which are the most hybridized, insanely colored flowers there are, and they have really splashy names. So I'm looking at this book, and there's a black bearded iris, and it's called Anvil of Darkness. <laughs> and I, I, I started writing this really jokey poem about the idea of growing the Anvil of Darkness, and the poem went... <laughs> and so I, I love that, and I think that has to do with what you're talking about, about a certain um, a resistance to endings... Um, a desire to stay longer with the material and see where it might carry you. Because mm -hmm. I think if I were going to say one sweeping generalization about developing writers, it's that they tend to stop too soon. And I don't mean by that that we should all be writing long poems or long memoirs or novels, you know, but rather that um, we often close down inquiry early on because we're daunted by complexity. So if, for instance, if, here's an example. If you are working on something and you suddenly think of a great last line, you, it may be a great last line. You, you should write it down. But it's also a sure sign that you want to get out of there. You want to, you want to be done with it right, and close it off because reaching for an ending is attempting to uh, put a limit to the multiplication of possibilities. Right? Mm -hmm. 
And perhaps you're afraid of what the, what, where you're leading yourself. Absolutely. Anvil of Darkness, that sounds like a good speed metal band. <laughs> you know, I think yeah. that's great. I think if you're not a little afraid while you're writing, um, you're not done yet. Right. I think you ought to be a little, a little worried. I think actually. so. I think so. Yeah. Um, two thoughts come to mind, I want to say before I forget them. Um, the idea of rebirth is sort of, um, is also a, um, a fight against that idea that we are all mortal, mm-hmm. um, or we have different kind of mortalities. We have many more mortalities in our lives, in a way, um, which I think is kind of interesting, and that, that's a little bit hopeful, I suppose. Yes, it is. Right. Um, and the other thing is sort of a general question. I remember, you know, when I was a high school student, I didn't know what I wanted to be when I grew up. I certainly didn't think I was going to be a poet. Um, but I remember, you know, reading poetry in Father Nauman's junior year class at, you know, uh, the Jesuit high school I went to, and thinking, what's wrong with these poets? They're all so obsessed with death. Yeah. And... Um, I think it's kind of funny. I mean, you can laugh. Please, let's go ahead. It's okay. Uh, you know, it's, it's just crazy. And then um, I become a poet and, and, uh, and, and you know, memoir. And what, do I, what, do I, what am I obsessed with? Mm. I'm obsessed with death. Yeah. And so I really loved your, I loved, you know, getting to know your work because I felt like I was among the tribe. Um, but, <laughs> I don't really think of it as, as morbid. You know, it doesn't feel morbid yeah. to me. It, it feels more like um, how do you know what, it is to be alive. I mean, this half of experience, if you don't pay attention to the other half, I mean, how do you know what sound is without silence? Uh, it, uh, everything comes marbled in that way. And so to, in fact, I think to say that, that there's the living and the dead is probably a mistake that would draw that line right down the middle. It's a lot more interwoven. I'm full of dead people. You know, I carry them around. Right. And there are parts of me that seem to have perished and other parts that are reborn. Thus that poem, that the line, you know, born twice in one day. Right. Thinking about that, as you say, you know, constantly beginning and yeah. ending. Yeah. Um, I'd also like to quote just a, a short passage from Stillrife, which talks about this um, and continues that idea of uh, language as an, as an attempt to capture something. Um, and it, when I first read this, I was surprised at the turn it took, um, but I think it fits. It, <clears throat> excuse me, it fits into this discussion. Uh, what makes a poem a poem? Finally, is that it is unparaphrasable which I, I don't know if that's, I've never read that word. I love that word, unparaphrasable. There is no other way to say exactly this. It exists only in its own body of language, only in these words. Part of what poetry is, I think, is the inner life of the dead held in suspension. It is still visible to us. You can look at the paintings and you can feel it. This is evidence that a long act of seeing might translate into something permanent, both of ourselves and curiously impersonal, sturdy, useful. Of what use exactly? As advocates of intimacy, as embodiments of paradox, as witnesses to earth here, this moment, now, evidence thus that tenderness and style are still the best gestures we can make in the face of death. Isn't that great? <laughs> I shouldn't ask you that. Um, so, so I just came from San Francisco, uh, where I was doing another uh, th- event, and um, at the the Young Museum now is a show of Dutch paintings, and the jewel of this show is the girl with the pearl earring. Is there right? That, that incredible Vermeer, and you know it, it's gotten the Mona Lisa treatment, and it, it's it's a hundred people are standing around it, and it's sort of cordoned off, and but it's still the girl with the pearl earring. And when you look at that painting. Death has, death has left the room, you know? Uh, mm-hmm. It is, that girl is constantly arriving in the gaze of Johannes Vermeer every second, and she's arriving in your gaze. He's not gone, she's not gone. Something has been suspended there, which is 
delight, pleasure, um, uh, a little bit of apprehension. You know, she, she's she's a little startled or, or uncertain what's going to happen next. But that moment is imperishable, as far as I can tell. Yeah, yeah. And it's that moment of beauty, which is tied to the light. I think, Extraordinary. which, which yeah. is, is is timeless. Nobody ever paid more uh, studious and rapturous attention to light. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I totally agree with that. Um, and somehow this reminds me of um, Judy Garland. Why, sure. <laughs> Tenderness and style. Yeah. Maybe that's an awkward segue. Uh, I'm trying. Uh, there are a couple different places where you write about her, um, it, most notably, I think, in, in, um, in Dog Years, um, it, where um, you go to a show, and someone is um, impersonating Judy Garland, and um, it becomes this meditation on why you know why people um, dress up as Judy Garland and pretend to be Judy Garland, and also because of a rumination on um, 9/11 mm-hmm. a little bit, which I thought was really fascinating. Uh, but there's this one quote, and um, I, I love it, um, and I think it also it, it ties to that idea of rebirth, uh, and then also standing tall in the face of death, which I think is. In those moments, there is great beauty. Yes. I'm trying to tie these these together. So you say, Judy, of course, doesn't stand in the ruins. She is the ruin, (laughs) which is a great quote. I was thinking about, um, if you know that great old uh, Jeanette McDonald Nelson Eddy movie, San Francisco... And Jeanette McDonald is, is, you know, survives the earthquake, and she stands in the ruins and sings. Right? <laughs> you know, nothing has happened. To her. She just goes on singing. But um, yeah, when you think about the mess that Judy Garland was, she sort of created her own ruin around. And, and you know, I have um, I've written about her in, in a couple of contexts, in part because she is the hoariest and tiredest of gay male cliches, and I don't like that. I want to dust her off, you know, and, and give her the dignity she deserves. Um, Partly it's just because, you know, when I was a kid, um, her television show was on. And my parents didn't like it, and I was just like, glued to that screen. Like, what on earth is, is this? <laughs> and uh, in, in Firebird, I described her as a, some kind of an amalgam of glamour and damage, and, um, which is a phrase that works because of the, the uh, ass and an amalgam of glamour and damage, the MMM. So um, I'm watching this program. It's a PBS series like The History of American Popular Song. And it's the Judy Garland, uh, you know, 15 minutes. And the commentator says, well, as the poet Mark Doty has said. <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm so excited. But if I get to be a descriptor for Judy Garland, you know, yeah. that's cultural currency. Um, so in the moment you're, you're referring to, Michael, uh, my, my, partner, my then partner and I had gone after 9-11, um, well, maybe a couple months later, uh, we went to see this Judy Garland impersonator because it was such a, like, a camp thing. Uh, in Hell's Kitchen, in the you know like Forty Fifth Street, something like that, this cabaret bar, and you 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 know you get your ticket and you have to buy about three drinks to, to go on with it, which you need to, to get through it. And um, the singer is a, a kind of a short, uh, overweight man named Tommy Femia, who gets up on that stage, and he's not young, glamorous Judy. He's Judy, kind of you know, as things are unraveling, and he just belts these. He's not lip syncing; he is singing, and he's belting these songs. And there's something about his projection of indestructibility, which was like exactly what New York City needed at that moment. You know, our town had a hole ripped in it. And that little, you know, fireplug drag queen is just belting it out. We, you know, nothing's going to stop us, right? It was fantastic. Yeah. The spiritual cheerleader. You know? I thought it was wonderful. And, um, and you talk about, you said, you know, um, 
she is the she is the thing that um, gay men can look at and understand. Mm. You know what everyone went through, and it's funny. You know, I I just thought. Yeah, that's exactly right. But it's also, it, it reminded me so much of my mother. And I think mm-hmm. the generation of, of our mothers who, uh, you know, my mother adored Judy Garland. And in some ways, she, I, I don't know if she consciously did this. I would love to ask her this, but I can't. Um, you know, she, she sort of looked a little bit like Liza Minnelli mm-hmm. sometimes. And I, you just wonder. I mean, I think the idea that, you know, she struggled and gave up lots of things yeah. in order to create this life for others or this entertainment for others. And I thought it was, it, it made me think of that and it made me see... Um, you know, j- just your short passage made me think of uh, my mother in a new way, and I think a whole generation of women in a new way. You can see, you know, when you, when you watch Garland, you can see the gap between her ambitions, I mean, that, that great soaring voice and an enormous ability, and her realities, which are painful. You, you know, I mean, she, she's um, a drug addict, she, she's, um, in, she's an alcoholic, she's in bad shape, you know, she's had any number of failed relationships. She's just hanging on. And you can see that tension between the desire and the actuality or, or the artifice and, and the reality, quote-unquote. And that's very compelling to me. And, and I think that's, uh, of course, I can see that in my mother, too, that who she wished she was and, and right. who she was were often you know, not the same thing. Right. And that's true for all of us in one time or another. You know, there's a gap. There, there are many kinds of gaps between our, say, the public self and the private self or between the best self and the cracked self, you know. Mm-hmm. And I think there's something beautiful in that idea that they are the ruin, um, and they they're pro- not necessarily proud of it, but they are mm. they're it. It's inescapable. Yeah. In right. um, I lived in Provincetown, Massachusetts for for 15 years, and Provincetown is a, a historically gay and lesbian resort, and has a big drag performance culture. So you see these guys in huge boots and great big headdresses out on the street barking to get customers to come into their shows in the evening and they'll be seven feet tall and you know sparkling and, and uh, let's talk about firebirds right <laughs> and then you see the same men in the grocery store and they're in their sweatpants you know and they're, and they're buying some you know Mrs. Paul's fish sticks or something and they're just like <laughs> you know there is no fire there and, and look at that sort of thing well which of these is the authentic self are you, are you real when you're performing and you're sparkling for the world and, and you're empowered or are you real when and you're naked, as it were. I don't think that the naked self is always the authentic one, you know? Mm. And so there's a way in which, I mean, that's in a way what the writing of poetry is, is that you are constructing a text for the person, to be the person you want to be, you know, or to, to give form to the highest self or the most perceptive self. So the poem becomes a kind of outfit to put on, you know, to yeah. wear for the world. You say highest self, but do you think also it's, it has to do with the uh, the authentic self, like you like you just mentioned? Well, authentic no. is such a vexed word, isn't right? it? Yeah. I think authentic is something you feel. I don't, I don't think it um, resides any place by nature, but I think authentic is something that you, you construct and that you earn. You know? Yeah. You build. Yeah. Or you get you get scared you know, like scared by. Like <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think what I was doing there is actually more authentic than what I'm doing now because I had time to, to make it and to construct it. I mean, this is, sometimes we would think, well, the spontaneous is what's authentic, but right. I don't know. Yeah, not always. Yeah, it, yeah. Or it could be, but You don't might really be need to compare them so much. We can <laughs> have a lot of kinds of cells. Right. Yeah. Um, do you find yourself, when you're reading poetry, especially new poems, I think that last poem, I, there was a moment where there was a certain intensity that came into the room. I don't know if anybody else noticed that. Uh, or maybe, you know, maybe it was just trying to read the iPad. But there was a certain oh. intensity that oh. kind, of, kind of caught you for a second. It's, um, because it's not an artifact yet, you know, um, what happens over time is that as I reread poems, I'm not reliving them. And that hasn't cooled enough. 
to, mm -hmm. to be that sort of thing. So I'm trying to sort of uh, negotiate my own emotions while reading you the poem, you know? Yeah. yeah. And would you say audiences like that? Do you, is that a heightened moment for you? I think, yeah. I think it's contagious, yeah. I think so. I think yeah. so. People catch I, it. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if that's authentic or not. I, I mean, again, who knows? Oh, no, it's not going I mean, yeah. yeah, it's, yeah, yeah that was authentic. It's intense, I guess. Yeah, yeah. yeah. which I, which I'll have. And you want to, you know, you don't want to be like, um, oh, you know, emotionally overcome by your you own. You want to cry right? over your own but, poem. I mean, it should be about the feeling the audience is having, not the feeling that I'm having. But I can't help it when it's it's new. And every once in a while, you know, um, like I wrote an, any number of poems about um, the real crisis years of the epidemic and. Now I can read those poems without losing it, but um, you know I had a partner for 11 years who died in 1994, and sometimes in an audience there'll be somebody who knew him, and I catch that face, and I know this isn't a poem for them, and that does me right in. You yeah, know, so. yeah, I could see that for sure. Yeah, um, I, if I'm reading, I can't look at my wife. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm just looking at. I don't know. Just... <laughs> Too much information. Okay, so. Um... <laughs> So the, I have a subheading here, time, decay, death, beauty, um, colon, grief, which we've been talking about a lot of it, and I'm pr probably we can talk just for another few minutes, and then we can, um, I want to move to some craft questions. Um, but again, there's a, a wonderful quote from Still Life. So this is a, a, a sort of a nonfiction meditation on um, paintings, still life paintings, uh, one in particular. Um, so it's Still Life with Oysters and Lemon, um, wonderful book, and it just so happens that it's for sale out, outside. So, um, and I, I bet Mark would sign it if you asked him kindly. Um, anyways, he says, There's a Japanese word for things made more useful by use that bear the evidence of their own making. Of course, I'm thinking of Judy Garland, among other things. Um, the beauty shop, too. Evidence of their own making, or the individuating marks of time's passage. A kind of beauty not immune to time, but embedded in it. These objects in still life are in use, in dialogue, a part of, implicated. They refuse perfection, or rather they assert that this is perfection, the state, this state of being consumed, used up, enjoyed, existing in time. And there's lots of poems where you have these things. Um, you know, there are um, decaying turtles, there are shells, there are uh, uh, lots of things that are um, flawed or worn out, and yet there's a, still something that's intact about them, and often the poem becomes a meditation on those broken things. So there's a question? How do you do that? <laughs> How do you not? <laughs> you know, um, thing, e even those things, you know, that seem most permanent are, are not. You, you, can, you can go into, um, you know, a great art museum and, and you can look at pictures that are very, very slowly turning into oil and dirt, before, because that's what they're made of the, it, before your eyes. The paint is slowly slipping. The stone is moldering. Um, mm. you know, it just depends on the position at which you stand in time. Right? So we, luckily, we move slowly enough that we are not watching our own bodies you know, fall apart in front of us. Uh, at least, I mean, we are. It's pretty clear, though. Yeah, it's pretty clear. <laughs> but, you know, but it's not like, yes. from, it's not like from Friday to Saturday. You know, it's sort of, it, you know, over depends a Depends on what home. you did Friday night, yeah, but yeah, that's, yeah true. that's true. There is that, yeah, yeah. <laughs> You get my drift. Yes, you know, I do. But, I do. Um, yes. How how could you not acknowledge the impermanence of, of everything around you in your in your art, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think in some ways, you know, that's um, not to oversimplify, but that is, you know, again, why um, often poets address 
grief and death because right. it's part of that process. And some of the things that actually I find most beautiful are, are things that are like most ephemeral. Um, right. I, I used to love in when I lived on Cape Cod, the way sometimes uh, there would be a fog or a low cloud bank, and you would look at the water, and it, there was no horizon line. The water would just go right up into the sky, and the whole thing was a rippling. You know? yeah. Or watching um, fog veil things and the veil passing and changing. Um, those are um, sort of demonstrations of the instability of the world that are, are very attractive. It's also why I like magic tricks hmm. and um, movies. Interesting. Yeah. Magic tricks. Yeah, because yeah. Yeah, you know, they, they prove that... that um, things aren't so solid, hmm. or they seem to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Interesting. Um, I'd like to change, change gears just a little bit and talk about your process as a writer. Um, and some of these are very basic questions, which you you know. So ho- hopefully, if you were thinking of answering these questions, I've already taken care of that um, in the Q and A, which will happen in a few minutes. Um, so you can think of better questions to ask. So, <laughs> uh, what is your process of writing poetry as? As, as a poet, and then also what is is your process um, of writing prose different? Mm-hmm. Um, well, I have an ideal process and a real process of writing prose. <laughs> and and um, the ideal process is, is I, you know, I get up in the morning, I don't really talk to anybody, I, I make some coffee, um, I wander around the garden, I, or if I'm in the city, I, I sort of stare out the window for a while, and gradually kind of make my way to my desk, and just start working without knowing where I'm going. And that might mean might have a line in mind or a phrase, but, but often it means just opening up the computer and I have dozens and dozens of little files with it's just sort of a stem in them, something I saw or some phrase I want to remember, and I'll open them and just say, hmm, no, you know, yeah, can I do anything with that? You know? yeah. And just start playing and play for a couple of hours, and not with the intention of finishing anything, but see where it takes me. And very often, one, at some point, the horse starts to move, you know, and, and something happens and begins to acquire a solidity. So that's the ideal process. I don't get to do that very often. So, so the real process is, um, you know, um, on the the notes uh, app on the iPhone. Mm-hmm. You know, something noticed, shoot it down. Um, yeah. Sometimes half a palm on that. Um, on grocery bags, uh, on napkins, <laughs> um, uh, on the fly. You know, back of a taxi cab, airplane, wherever. Yeah. You know? If yeah. it, you know, I ask my students not to be inspiration driven because they need to um, deepen their practice and uh, if they wait to be sort of spurred by the muse to write a poem they tend to keep writing the same poem but mm. uh, I'm inspiration driven yeah yeah, yeah. But I, you know, I've been doing it for a while. So, um, Chris, Ans- Chris Rancic, who's a, a wonderful poet, a local poet who teaches for us, um, he talks about the concept of bliss station. Mm-hmm. And um, one, thing, one thing he said during, during a class which I took as a student, which changed my life, he said you're either, um, you're either a, a stable bliss station person or you're like a turtle, meaning you, meaning you carry your bliss station with mm-hmm. you. And I thought... I'm a turtle. I wanted to just stand up and shout that out. So you sound like you're a little bit like... Well, but, you know, it, interestingly, it changes. There was a time when I used to have to work in my study with my books and my, my sort of sacred objects and my bird bones and feathers <laughs> and seashells and all this stuff. And I used to... My study was fairly close to the street, and I used to get annoyed if people had conversations on the street. Like, how dare you have a conversation with I'm trying to write a poem? And now <laughs> I'm I like working. working in coffee shops, you know? And, yeah. and I, I will be really happiest if there's some music and some white noise, and I can focus in a different way. So yeah. I think I didn't know that for the longest time. I mean, like, letting your process change seems really useful. Yeah, I think that's great. Enjoying what else you might do. And, and I think I, heard, I, I read an interview where you talked about um, the process of running prose is much different for you. Yeah, it, it, it is because um, you know, if you sit down and scribble a few lines, 
uh, and then you don't scribble a few more lines for a while. <laughs> that prose book is not going to get done. You know, just not, that is not going to happen. So um, that's really like making an appointment with yourself. And, and most of my prose books have been written right straight through um, when I had time off from teaching, and I would begin at the beginning and write an entire draft through the book, um, working you know five six days a week, and then going all through it again. Um, that has now changed because um, I've been uh, wrestling with a book about Walt Whitman for the last um, two years. I think about it before that, two years of actually writing. And um, I, I just can't see it all at once. Mm-hmm. And also, I don't have the luxury of that kind of time. So what I've been doing is I, I dive down into it. I work very intensely. I come back up. And then it might be months before I return to it. And it's why it's taking forever. I don't yeah. recommend that as a process. Is it tough to get back into it? Do you look it at it and go, where the heck into was it. I again? What, what did I, yeah. Why did I say that? And it's a tricky book because it's, um, it's, it, it's if you imagine such a thing, it's a memoir about reading Walt Whitman. So it, it's thinking about my life in relation to his work and right. our common obsessions. And it's not a standard critical book. And therefore, um, I have to keep saying to myself, what do you think you're doing? You know, how, how on earth do you have the nerve to write this book? Right? Yeah. So, and then once I get past that, I go back and write the book. Right? right. But I have to think, boy, are you ever arrogant? And then I get over that and I write the book. <laughs> I think you'll do just fine. Well, thank you. <laughs> but it's interesting that you say that. It's kind of like a memoir. So then it, I would think it's even more difficult then because it's not, um, it's not bound by time. So every time you go back and read Walt Whitman, it might change. Time avails so, not, distance avails not. Yeah. yeah that's yeah. what he said, crossing Brooklyn Ferry. Amazing. How do you know, but I'm enjoying this. I'm with you now. <laughs> Men and women of a generation hence. Yeah. Wonderful. Um, Don't get me started. Anyway. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> no, go, go ahead, please. <laughs> um, so you're working on that book, and you're finishing a book of poetry? Yeah, the book of poems will be done actually really soon. I'm, I'm almost there, just a little bit more. Um, some drafts to, to finish. And then the, the prose book, um, I, I don't know, it's, it's already um, late. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and, you know, this is a, sort of a, a question that I, I want to know personally. Um, how do you go about putting the book together and ordering the poems? Is there a certain way you think about it? Um, it, it needs, who, who, I think Robert Frost, I think, who said that, you know, if you have a collection of 23 poems, the book is the 24th poem. The, the, the thing as a whole mm. has some life of its own. And I know truthfully, that most readers of poetry do not read books in order. People dip around. You, know, you pick a title that you like, or you, you, you know, oh, that's too long, I'll read that later. You know, that kind of thing. Um, and then maybe eventually we settle down and read the whole thing. But for, I think for most poets, the, the, the ordering of a book is crucial to us, and it has to do with um, creating an arc, uh, so there's some kind of developing knowledge or encounter. It also has to do with uh, the, the mystery of pacing, you know, that, that you want mm. to move through this thing with a certain degree of, of um, energy, and therefore you have to alternate uh, tones and forms and get not alternate too much, but have a kind right. of music where one phrase slides into another. So it's been crucial to me. Yeah. It's kind of fun to do that. I think um, it, it, it's a very creative process, which sort of very much so. And you yeah. learn a great deal about the work through arranging and rearranging. And sometimes, you know, you, you see that oh, I need to write a poem that fits here. Mm-hmm. Right. I'm, I'm missing a right. gap, which is unusual, um, uh, but it, but it can be. It, it's an enlightening process. Um, so, as a teacher, um, what sorts of things do you commonly see your students struggling with, and how do you help them overcome these mm-hmm. challenges? Since we're talking mm-hmm. about craft, mm-hmm. okay. um, I think that. 
the thing that my students struggle with the most, and this is, this is true both for my um, advanced undergraduates and also for graduate students, is um, taking a step beyond what you know how to do. You know, we, I think that the process of development for writers is often when we, you, you arrive at a certain degree of mastery. You, know, you figure, I can make this kind of poem. Right. And, and often making this kind of poem might mean it has a turn in it, or it's exactly a page long, or it, it, it has a particular tone that you can handle. And how do you push out past that in order to explore another room in the house or to, to just simply broaden your embrace? And so I find myself in a lot of like, like mm, you know, <laughs> a little bit, what about this right here? Is there a little more to say? Can you lean on that a little further? So yeah. um, I really do believe in... Um, School as, uh, as as putting yourself in a hothouse. You know, you, you it's an opportunity to grow more swiftly than you might on your own. Hmm. So I try to push a little. Yeah, yeah. Do you ever say, "Why don't you put a question in the poem?" Since that's something that you do often. Um, do I ever say that? I, I show them poems with various kinds of technical variations that they might not immediately ha- have thought of, mm-hmm. such as the question, yeah. or changing your mind, something Elizabeth Bishop was the master of this, she presents you with a simile and she says, or, you know, and then gives you another one. <laughs> but that's not quite um, it. Yeah. yeah, it's not quite it, right. Or, or yeah. the, those little, those wonderful little parenthetical, or in between EM dashes, she'll put in those little assertions, you know. Yeah. Um, and, and that can be a marvelous thing, like the... To show the mind at work, the process of qualification or consideration. So, mm-hmm. yeah, that. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, in some ways, that is the true defini- definition of a lyric poem. is the mind in the act of thinking Absolutely. about something I- in the moment. And, and that suggests um, trying to, as an ultimate goal, perhaps, trying to get as much of one's own or the character of one's own mind on the page as you can. So that um, this is another place where I see my students often sort of stuck a little bit in that, uh, you know, they'd be, they have to prove that they're serious, so they absolutely refuse to crack a joke in a poem, right? right? <laughs> or to, um, you know, thinking about making an ironic gesture or right. maybe shifting tone partway through. I'm really interested in poems that, uh, you know, the poet displays a range of character. You let yourself get mad. Um, you allow yourself to be unattractive now and then. They know? have to change. Exactly. Right. Change has to happen, yeah. otherwise yeah. the poem's mm-hmm. static and yeah. flat. You don't have to be the hero of your own work, you know, all the time. Some no? of the time. Yeah. Shoot. <laughs> okay. Um, well, I, I'd like to move on now to um, what I uh, affectionately like to call, I guess that's not really affectionately, but uh, the lightning round. So if you've come to <laughs> past um, writer studios, you, you probably recognize some of these questions. Mm. Um, you mentioned oh. really quickly a little bit of this, but um, can you describe your desk or workspace for us? Am I supposed to answer these quickly? Is that the idea? No. 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 Um, <laughs> Sure. In um, four words it, or less. No. It's a um, it, it's a Mexican uh, table. I bought it in Houston. It's it's very battered. It came from someplace in central Mexico. Um, it it's had a lot of use. Um, has nice rough boards on top and, and a kind of wavy surface. High legs, so I have to like screw my desk chair up high. Um, and it's it's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. And what are some of the objects on on the desk? Um, Student papers, <laughs> um, a, a, a little um, obelisk made of feldspar. Oh, right now, there's a bronze rabbit head. Uh, what else is on there? Some Japanese papers, were beautiful. Yeah. Bronze rabbit rabbit head. Uh-huh, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. Is there a story behind that? No. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to go in my door. It just hasn't gotten there yet. <laughs> I see. Um, 
What's your most favorite thing to do besides writing and reading? Oh, um, hanging out with animals. I mean, really, of sort of whatever sort, really. Yeah. 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 It gives me great pleasure. I'm so glad you have a new dog. Me too. I have two, actually. Two? A little one. Um, it's my first terrier. Uh, he hasn't made it into a poem yet because he's just... Um, I'm, well, I'm working on an understanding of his character. Let's put it to the I see. He hasn't revealed himself George. to you yet. George. Isn't yet. George. Yeah. No, yeah. Yeah. He's very charming, but, you know, yeah, I fundamentally don't get him. Yeah. Not poetic yet. No. No. Okay. <laughs> They're not translatable exactly. Ah, uh, yes, translatable. Oh, but you He's know what this is not I do have yes. a George story, which I think actually is a little a poem I haven't, I'm almost finished with. Where, uh, I'm, George likes to bark at anything unfamiliar, uh, like you know, a letter uh, thing that the post, the letter carrier has, or, or a bag of garbage sealed up, or any a person in a hood, you know, a woman in a green dress. I mean, just bark, bark, bark. And so we're going to 15th Street, the next block from my house in Manhattan. And my neighbors have this big stone Buddha that's behind an iron fence. And George goes up to the Buddha. It's like, you get out of here. I just loved it. <laughs> we don't want your kind around here. <laughs> George refuses George is about enlightenment. This big. Yeah. <laughs> big stone Buddha, big belly, and little George. It's great. George says, no. <laughs> that's wonderful. Uh, what's your favorite color? Blue. Blue. Me too. Um, <laughs> this has often gotten some interesting answers, although I think I know what your answer is going to be. I'm, I'm a, uh, if I were a betting man, I'd put 50 bucks on this. If you hadn't become a writer, what do you think you'd be doing career-wise? I'd be a psychotherapist. Interesting. Or, or a veterinarian. A vet. I, that's, I could, that's what was my vote. I couldn't do it, I couldn't do that because of the, the chemistry math thing, um, which I can't do. Um, but I could mm. maybe, I could, have a, I could run a home for homeless golden retrievers, that kind of thing. There you go. Yeah, a no-kill yeah. shelter. Yeah, yeah, I could do that. You should, yeah. move, you should move to Colorado. That You'd, be, you'd fit yeah. in perfectly. Yeah. 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 The dog is the state animal, right? Wouldn't you say? <laughs> but but actually, I truly am, I actually really am interested in psychotherapy, particularly as in this sense of people shaping stories and story, the agency of the story as a means to live better. Right, and, and, and I always think of it um, in my limited experience with psychotherapy. Uh, yeah. uh, <laughs> just 15, 20 years. Um, <laughs> it, 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 the idea that um, a, psychopar- ther- a psychotherapist's job primarily is to see metaphors in people's lives and yeah, to right. hold a mirror up to it and let them see what, what is the underpinnings beneath that exactly those events or those things right. or those images that they, right. they are, they are and I think about. also to be a sort of keeper of, of one's story right. perhaps in a way that's very difficult to do for oneself you yeah know? you, you right. help them create a narrative exactly. that they can right. and, and sort of holding the parts together right. somehow I wonder if it's a narrative that they can live with or that gives them insight or if it is the true narrative of their lives. Or, or is it simply you know, what, what narratives are useful to you? I, I think if you don't make your own, you, you are condemned to live out those that have been written upon you. Right? Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Well said. Yeah. Well said. Um, if you could be at a dinner party with a few of your favorite writers, dead or alive, who would they be? Oh, my God. Hart Crane. Um, Flannery O'Connor. Uh, Rilke. Uh-huh. Uh, Constantine Cavafy, mm, James Merrill, and Elizabeth Bishop. Big party. That's like a good party, huh? Good yeah. party. Yeah. yeah, good party. Not Emily Dickinson? Uh, she's more one to one. You wouldn't want, I don't think she'd be. <laughs> she, would would, be the, she would be a great guest. <laughs> you want to have a drink with her by yourself. <laughs> right. Go out for coffee yeah. or tea. Whitman yeah. could come to the party. <laughs> right. You know. 
Yeah. You know, Emily liked to hide behind the door when she received guests with the door ajar, right? And just sort of talk behind it. Right. You're thinking on that on a whole different level than I would have thought. That, that's quite wonderful. <laughs> Thomas Lex last year said, without hesitation, um, Whitman and Emily Dickinson. Uh-huh. And I said, why? He said, well, they are, the, they are the, the godparents of American poetry. And I thought that was going to be Right, but do you know that when Emily Dickinson, supposedly when she opened Leaves of Grass, she was so scandalized that she slammed it shut immediately and never looked again. That's what she said. So it wouldn't be a great party, probably. Well, yeah. You would think that. But, but I think the woman who wrote Wild Nights, you know that poem? I think she read Leaves of Grass. I <laughs> Emily, uh, Emily at least had a vivid sexual imagination, if not vivid sexual experience. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. I'm, and yeah. Walt will stand back, you know? Right, exactly. Yeah. Yes, yes. Harold uh, Bloom likes to tell us he was merely a masturbator. No. <laughs> no, 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 no. no. Merely. <laughs> I, love I know. As if it's like something wrong with that. Merely is just dismissive, you know? Right. <laughs> Hmm. Makes me wonder about Harold Bloom. Um, uh, what's a recent favorite movie? Oh, oh, you know, I'm going to embarrass myself, but I actually, I saw The Great Gatsby. Yeah, it's it's pretty good. Is it good? It's pretty good. It, I mean, it's garish and it's loud and, and it's in your face. But if you sort of submit to the style, actually, has great narrative momentum. You know, it's just it's another thing. It's not the novel. It's another right. thing. Right. It's, and I think it's very much like 21st century filmmaking. It, it's really. Um, uh, I think it would do very well in the cinemas of like uh, Manila, you know, and, right. and, and uh, right. Malaysia. I mean, it, it's it's a very it's a postmodern pastiche, and it's crazed and it's fevered and it's all artifice. But it, it really right. swept me along. It's spectacle. Yeah. It's yeah. certainly getting a strong reactions. Oh, most people hate it. Most yeah. people just hate it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, but, but sort of readers hate it. But how could you hate um, Leonardo in a movie? I mean, that's you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Has anybody seen it here? Anybody seen this movie? Did you hate it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What about you? I loved it. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It, you know how um, sometimes you know you go, sometimes you you go in a clothing store and you're really drawn to the stuff that just it's just bad taste, you know. But it's just like great bad taste. It's like that. It, it's it's like that. Yeah. Sometimes we need that. You, you know, um, uh, all good taste can be really stultifying. <laughs> I think. Hey, I, I grew up in Buffalo, New York. Um, I, I know that yeah. intimately. Yeah, I think it was Frank O'Hara who used the phrase "life-giving vulgarity." Yeah. <laughs> That's great. Um, do you have a favorite work of art, painting, or sculpture? I feel like I'm thoroughly subverting this, this, this <laughs> lightning round. A favorite work of art, no, or one that one that it. kind of stands out to you? Obviously, you mentioned the Vermeer yeah, already. Um, Maybe that's good mm, enough. Um, Right now, actually, um, Jackson Pollock, who I didn't understand for many, many years, um, but I, I, my house out in the country is a couple miles away from his studio, and it still has you know the drips on the floor and his jars of paint, and it also it still hums like you can feel the intensity of what went yeah. on in that space. And I was lucky enough; I have a friend who works at the Museum of Modern Art, having a big abstract expressionist show, and I got to get in when it's closed. And so, you know, you usually go to a museum, it's as much about the people next to you yakking, you know, as it is what you're looking at, right? right? But I was alone with this room full of Jackson Pollocks. And when you're alone, they're completely different than I thought. They're prayers. Right. They're in, in an entire room, I bet that was a very they are, powerful they experience. They just draw you in and lift you up. They're yeah. extraordinary paintings. Yeah. I, I, I didn't know. They're great works of art. Yeah. yeah. He's wonderful. Yeah. Um, favorite song? No. No. <laughs> 
That's great. That's the best answer. <laughs> um, <laughs> what's your favorite swear word? <laughs> well, these are the questions that we have. I'm sorry. I'm stuck okay, with them. Um, fuck. <laughs> fuck. Okay. Yeah. Fuck. Yeah. yeah. I'm a New Yorker. Fuck. <laughs> <laughs> It's a verb, a noun, an it's adverb. Everything. It, it's, it's everything. It's everything, exactly. exactly. It's very serviceable. Doing? What the fuck are you doing? <laughs> Great. Well, thank you. Okay, you That's all I have for the lightning round. <laughs> and now, Dare you ask questions after that? Now we'll entertain questions from the audience. I believe we have a microphone, and Dan, Dan Manzanares, the wonderful creative curator at us, will serve as Phil Donahue. <laughs> Probably true. It's when I um, travel, I don't realize that I'm missing home until I get like somewhere near Penn Station and you hear people talking on the street. You know, ah, blah, blah, forget about it. Fuck. Blah, blah, blah. You know, it's just like, ah, oh, New York. New York is back in my ear. You know, um, that is the question. It took me a while to, to recognize this, but this is the question that I'm always I'm asked more often than any other. And usually I give a, I realized after a while that I was giving a different answer every time I was asked, which means I don't know. You know, there's no answer. It's a really mysterious thing because to say that a poem is done is to lay a claim on meaning. You know, I have arrived at what I needed to find in this material. And my poems always begin in image, and I grope my way towards significance. You know? so, so, for instance, the barbershop poem that you heard, I was really writing about the barbershop, and it was a complete surprise to me when Willie suddenly became the guardian of the dead, and that to uh, submit oneself to his benign care was to, in a way, to be in harmony with the dead because he was caring for all of us equally. I had no idea that was coming. And when that emerged, and I found myself following it towards the poem's conclusion, which is, you know, once again, an agreement to participate in an experience, uh, to live, in other words, um, I felt like that's what, I, that's what this poem wanted to be. And, of course, after that, there's a lot of polishing and fiddling and, and getting it right, but I guess there's the, the initial way that you know that a poem is done is that one arrives at this sense of having traveled somewhere. The, the poem has an arc. It has a movement towards an uh, experience of understanding or epiphany. And then after that comes the secondary ending, which is um, the polishing and fiddling, which is basically never over. You, you know, I mean, you, you stop doing it at some point, right? But when I pick up a poem in a book, I, I could sort of keep doing it and, and have. I mean, the, the poems in the new and selected have little changes in them from their original book publication, and you know, that just sort of goes on. Does that answer your question? Yeah. It, it's, it's sort of like one way to think about it is what's the point with these disparate materials you have when you feel like you've made a space that you could actually walk into? So you think of that as an architectural thing. You're moving from disparate materials to a sense of having built a house. I don't know anybody to talk about it except metaphorically, really. Um, so you uh, were talking about when you work with your students that you encourage them to go beyond what they uh, know and write about. Mm-hmm. And I ask if there are any poems that you're afraid to write. Oh, my goodness, yes, absolutely. Um, 
Yeah, there are some of them in this um, new collection. Um, I, um, you know, um, I'm talking about uh, moving through struggle towards affirmation, say, in the, um, that barbershop poem. I have a hard time writing poems that remain in struggle or, or that sort of their project is to give you a crystalline portrait of despair. You know, <laughs> I want something else to happen. And uh, I don't think that's uh, wise for every poem to be transformative. It's too much of a, um, a repetitive pattern, right? So uh, writing poems which arrive at, you know, their journey is towards a deeper sense of desolation, right? Or towards a, a more clear evocation of, of struggle. That's hard for me. Uh, and there are, you know, some of those in this book. Thank you. Um, well, so the question is talking about um, my book, Heaven's Coast, which is my first memoir. It's a book about grief. Um, it was begun about six weeks after uh, my partner died in 1994. And at that time, I, um, you know, I was sideswiped by new grief. I couldn't concentrate. I couldn't read. I, I could, no way I could write a poem. But I was feeling increasingly desperate because writing is what I've always done to know what I think and what I feel. And if I can't write, I start to feel like I'm barely here, you know, and it's like I'm so on the surface of things. So I remembered um, I'd gotten an invitation to contribute an essay to a book about gay men and spirituality. And I was washing the dishes one night and I thought, if I could write, this is the sentence. So it's, this is where I'd start. And I thought, well, okay, write it down. And there's sort of another sentence behind it. And I began to write this essay that was really about just observing myself in grief. And it was such a relief because I could finally concentrate on something. And I realized, you know, writing this essay, it was so useful to me that as soon as I was done, I started another one. And third essay was, I'm not writing essays, I'm writing chapters. You know, I'm, I'm writing a chronicle of grief. And there really wasn't any distance except that in writing one of these sentences, I would stop and say, you can do better than that. You know, you can do better. And that opens this little tiny bit of distance, which is aesthetic distance, right? I I can shape this. And if that distance is all you have, that can be enough to save your life, you know? That that, just that little margin to stand on and say, okay, everything I have to say is dreadful, everything I have to say is unbearable, but I'm going to say it well. And that can be enough to get you through, you know? And I had the the sense that... um, there were many books to read about grief that came from a spiritual position, you know, that was designed to make you feel better, or from a psychological position, your grief is normal, you'll feel better. I didn't want to read any of that. I, I wanted to read something that was as broken apart as I was, you know. And so I wrote it myself. And, and 
it's been interesting to me that, to hear, you know, as, as you have, um, people with similar experiences seem to respond to it very strongly. Because I, I think it does um, come from a somewhat unmediated position, except for aesthetically mediated. So, I, I, you know, advice, um, I, I don't know. Uh, it, it worked for me to write a book in the heat of grief. Uh, if I had waited two years, it would have been a very different book, and, and that might have been fine too. But I really needed to make that at, at that time. So I, I think you just have to um, trust your intuition and impulses. It was also a book where I had a really good editor. And, you know, if I was, as a poet, I'm always taking things out. As a memoirist, I thought, oh, you could put everything in this. You could go, more, 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 and more, you know, more stories, more anecdotes, more things I'm reading, more questions. So I put in everything. And it was really useful to me to have a good editor to help me take things out afterwards. Yeah, yeah I was lucky that way. There's a great guy at HarperCollins who, who bought the book when it was um, billed as a series of spiritual essays. He was really brave, you know. And then he got this thing. <laughs> but I felt like there was somebody waiting to catch it, and, and who, somebody who was a good prose editor who could really help me, and he did. That helped me a lot. About a month ago, John McPhee had an article in the New Yorker where he talks about Right. And really, how torturous it has been for him. He's mm-hmm. very experienced writer, almost self-flagellating. Mm-hmm. The struggle that he self-doubt, mm-hmm. even for an accomplished writer. And I was wondering, in your early life, was that something that you experienced, and do you experience that now? Mm-hmm. Well, actually, I, I truly think that writing is is a great pleasure. I, I, I love it. I, I don't ever want. I could never stop. I don't ever want to stop. I, I love the feeling of trying to make, I like sentences very much, I like making a beautiful sentence and to try to make something that's almost commensurate, you know, with with the world can I make something as beautiful or or leaning in the direction of the beauty of what I'm looking at Um, there is, I mean of course it's also a contract with feeling you know, I mean mean, to to write is to court feeling and that means, I I said earlier that you know, if you're not a little scared when you're writing there may be something wrong, but it's sort of facetious but but I really do think that when you are coming up upon the difficult, whatever that is for you it's not a sign that you should get up and wash the dishes, you know, or or go take a nap which is what I usually want to do when things are getting really hot, I want to go take a nap which means I should stay there at the computer and keep working and push through it, you know, because um it's usually I, I come to the point when I'm saying to myself, "Do I really have to say this?" That you know I've arrived somewhere. Yeah, but that's not the same. I wouldn't call that torture. I would call that you know, um, I would call that self-confrontation. Other questions? I can move over here too. <laughs> <laughs> Anyone? Hi, I have two questions. Um, I haven't read your memoirs yet, but the inscription on the grief one reminded me of the book Seaflow. Yes. Mm-hmm. Really right. And, uh, and then I was wondering when and how you were first introduced or first discovered Milk. I really enjoyed the play against Rilke. Oh, thank you. Gosh. Um, I first read Rilke. Um, I had, um, in high school, I had met a poet. His name was Richard Shelton. He taught at the University of Arizona. And I was introduced to him by a high school teacher of mine. And he took an interest in, you know, this 16-year-old in the Tucson suburbs who was reading Blake and, you know, writing these uh, sort of neo-surrealist poems. 
And, uh, and we became friends, and he would invite me to come down to the Poetry Center at the University, which was an old house lined with broadsides and photographs of poets and, and a library of poems. And I loved this place. I felt that it was um, an outpost of a community that was not bound in space or time exactly, but as a community of, of, of poets. And of this, you could enter into the inner life of people from the past. You could move around the world through translation. It was a remarkable thing. So um, somewhere in there, um, uh, somebody put Rilke in my hands, and I read, um, it would have been David Young's translation of Dwino Elegies, which, you know, at 18, what is he talking about? But in fact, um, it turns out that there was a Rilke that really spoke to me at 18, and 10 years later, there's a different Rilke who speaks to you, and 10 years after that, there's another one, which is a characteristic of very great poems, you know, that they, they get deeper, and, and they shift, as you do. So um, the Silence to Orpheus and the Duino Elegies and the new poems are certainly those, you know, that they, they never cease yielding. Um, a patron saint of interiority, at, at whatever cost, um, an insistence on sort of reaching beneath the surface of things, um, an incredibly kind of like vibrating sensibility, almost too, too high-pitched tuned for this earth, you know, but um, also an extraordinary voice. If you don't know them, there's a fabulous new translation of the Sonnets to Orpheus, which is a collection of poems I never liked very much. I just didn't get them. But the English poet Don Patterson has a version of them that is fantastic, and they're really muscular and vivid and alive. I recommend it highly. The patron saint of interiority. I like that. Love that. Um, speaking of Rilke, you'll be using a Rilke poem in the workshop tomorrow. Indeed, yep. There are still spots available if you're interested. It'll be having fun. Yes, it's going to be really, very fun. Um, and, and I have one, one final question and um, sort of relates to that moment with that instructor. Is that, um, if I remember right, when you met Charles Simic? Mm-hmm. Oh, actually, yeah, my high school creative writing class. Um, this is amazing. You guys know the poet Brenda Hillman? Some people, Brenda and I were, went to high school together. So we had the same creative writing class, Miss Jean Christensen. And it wasn't a great class, but it was okay. And, and, and it was a creative writing class in high school, you know, 1968 or so. <laughs> and um, an amazing thing was that we were an early uh, beneficiary of the Poets in Schools program. So people who would come and read at the university would come to my class. And I remember um, Ruth Stone's visit and Charlie Simic's visit. So I met those people very early on. And Simic was wonderful. You know, he, he, was, he wasn't that much older than me at that point. And he had you know, his first book in English, and his little round glasses. And uh, Miss Christensen said, you know, Mark, read, would you read Mr. Simic one of your poems? And I did. And he looked at me and he said, read me another one. <laughs> it's like the best compliment. Yes. Yes. Couldn't have been better. That could sustain yes. you for a lifetime. It, it has. Yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you, everyone, very much. Thank you, Mark. My pleasure. Wonderful. Lighthouse would like to thank the following generous donors that make events like this possible. The Scientific, Cultural, and Facilities District, the National Endowment for the Arts and Artworks, Colorado Creative Industries, Denver Arts and Venues, and many others. For more information about Lighthouse Writers Workshop, please go to lighthousewriters.org.